Today, we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes 3, 16 through 4, 8, and the passage is also printed in your bulletin for you. Now, Ecclesiastes is a book I'm sure many of us are familiar with as perhaps a perplexing, maybe somewhat depressing or fatalistic book. In fact, one of my um, friends from RTS who's from England remarked recently that if A equals B with Ecclesiastes, A equals giraffe. He's British, I don't understand it, but anyway, the point is that Ecclesiastes is perplexing to many of us. But I think a better way to approach Ecclesiastes, rather than to see it as some type of fatalistic or depressing book, is to see it as an agonizing struggle of an honest man who's trying to figure out how he can love and fear the Lord in the midst of the honest struggles that he experiences day to day. This man will refer to throughout the sermon as Kohelet, which is the name given to this man in Hebrew. And it simply means a teacher or a gatherer, as in someone who has taught or gathered many Proverbs. Well, the following scripture I'm going to be reading from is rather long, but I do want to read it at the outset in its entirety. So as I read it, just make some mental observations. What sticks out to you? What do you see as perplexing in the passage? And do you find any hope in it? And I imagine as we get into the sermon, most of your questions will hopefully be answered. So let me go ahead and read, and I'll be reading out of the ESV. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw all the toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, and there is, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Let me pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word that you promised to work through your word um, by your spirit of power. And Lord, I pray that you would do that among us today, that you would uplift the downcast, that you can pick the pride 
full so that all of us may walk away knowing that you are good, that you are more than worthy, full of our praise and admiration. We pray this in your precious and holy name. Amen. Well, in 1930, a British economist by the name of John Maynard Keynes predicted that within 100 years from 1930, the average work week for those in affluent nations, so places like America or Great Britain, would be reduced to a mere 15 hours a week. He thought that as more luxuries became readily available to those in affluent nations, that there would be less a need to work long and tedious hours. Well, we have about 15 years to go for this prediction to come to fruition, but it looks like John Maynard Keynes was wildly incorrect. In fact, one of the nearly universal human truths of our existence is that almost all of us will be required at one point or another to work long, tedious, and strenuous hours in our jobs. And although our jobs and responsibilities may differ, maybe some of us work from an office, some of us work from home, and maybe there are some of us who are even just working to find work. Regardless of where we're at, each of us have tasks that require us to toil in this fallen world. Or as how Ecclesiastes puts it, this life under the sun. This term, under the sun, is basically synonymous with this fallen world, and it's used quite readily in Ecclesiastes. Notice that our passage in 3.16 begins with the observation, under the sun, meaning in this fallen world. Well, Scripture as a whole has a lot to say about working and living in this fallen world or in this life under the sun. Littered throughout the pages of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we can derive principles, wisdom, and ethical norms for how we're supposed to live, for how God wants us to live and work. For instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, we're taught as Christians, or we're told as Christians, to be salt and light in the world. This means that as we go about our daily labors, we're meant to shine the light of the gospel through our changed lives, and then our gospel fruit is even intended to point others and draw others back to the Lord. Well, this example from the Sermon on the Mount teaches us essentially how we can approach life and work from what we'll call a kingdom perspective. That is, throughout Scripture, we're taught as individuals, as a community, as a church, how to approach our lives how to work our jobs in a manner that reflects our Lord, that loves the things that he loves, and that hates the things that he hates. We're taught a kingdom ethic. And if you're a Christian, you're a subject of this kingdom, and you're also called to embody this kingdom ethic and to reflect this kingdom perspective in your daily labors. Even though some of us may wonder how this text, Ecclesiastes, fits with the rest of Scripture, It, too, teaches us how to live and how to work from a kingdom perspective. Now, to be clear at the outset, this text doesn't tell us everything we need to know about approaching life and work from a kingdom perspective, but it gives us, I think, a formative and a foundational picture. And I think it's a picture, a different angle, that we as Christians need to hear and that we we as Christians can even sometimes neglect. So what I want us to see from this text today is that we're called to approach our lives and our work much differently than the typical normative Western experience. And we'll talk, we'll talk about later on what that typical normative Western experience really looks like. But we're called to approach our lives and work much differently than that. Even as Christians, we, we still live and work in this life under the sun, yet we're called to live our lives and work our jobs from a kingdom perspective. And what I want to show us from this text is that living our lives and working our jobs from a kingdom perspective involves three things. 
It involves an honest assessment about life and work, an equally honest hope, and three, honest work. So first, approaching life and work from a kingdom perspective requires an honest assessment of life and work in this fallen world. Throughout this passage, there are many statements that I think are a good commentary on our life experience. Yet I'm sure some of us might wonder how a phrase such as, better is he who has not yet been born, even made it into the Bible. It doesn't seem very biblical to us, does it? But let me assure you, it is biblical because it is in the Bible. But if we're honest with ourselves, I think many of us have probably felt things like this in some of the deepest, darkest, tedious moments of our lives. You see, this passage presents us with a raw and an honest observation about life and work in this fallen world. Kohelet, the author, he surveys the scene of what he observes, and he doesn't lie to himself. He doesn't water down what he sees in this passage. Simply put, he laments. I think Kohelet's approach is valuable for us to consider. See, on the one hand, he observes the injustice, and he observes the impression, but he recognizes it for what it is, and he wants no part in it. However, he also doesn't escape from the world. He doesn't throw up his hands and say, I give up, I want out. This middle ground between not retreating and not giving up and yet not caving into it is lament. It's being truly honest with ourselves and others about what we observe in this life under the sun, yet at the same time not caving in to the injustice and the oppression we observe. So, what are some of the tensions that Kohelet laments over in this passage? Let's just take a brief survey of that. The first is in 3.16 where Kohelet describes his first observation from under the sun. And the text reads, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the very place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. You see, Kohelet doesn't merely observe the presence of injustice in the world. I mean, he does, but it's more than that. And I think the, the presence of injustice is worth lamenting over in and of itself, especially when we see the poor and the powerless as those who are receiving the brunt of injustice. But Kohelet's approach is even more than that. He says that in the very place where justice should reign supreme, in the law courts, for instance, justice is absent. So anything more hopeless than something like that? Surely we all long for wrongs to be written. And while we should strive under the sun, you and I, to pursue justice, Kohelet's observation here I think is poignant and it's true. That is, that rampant injustice in this world is unavoidable. We're going to experience it, and we're going to see it. Well, in 4, 1 through 3, Kohelet also observes great oppression. He sees the great oppression done under the sun, and he reaches the shocking conclusion that we just read in 4, 2 through 3, where we read, And I thought the dead, who were already dead, more fortunate than the living, who were still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. In light of the pervasive oppression that he observes, his conclusion is quite shocking. Even the unborn child is better off than the dead. Now, perhaps these statements really do cause us some angst. I know they do for me at the outset, even if you don't confess the name of Christ. For many, these statements may lead us to press back on Kohelet, maybe saying something like, surely there is some joy to be found in life, right? Or surely our lives do have meaning and purpose, don't they? 
And I agree, absolutely, they do. Our lives do have meaning and purpose. Our lives are valuable. But at this point, I like what one commentator on this passage has to say, named Derek Kidner. And he says, if Kohelet's gloom strikes us as excessive at this point, I think it does, we may need to ask whether our more cheerful outlook springs from hope and not complacency. Will we as Christians see further than Kohelet allowed himself to look? We see the resurrected Christ. It is no reason to spare ourselves the realities of the present. In other words, let's be honest with ourselves about how we sometimes feel about life and work under the sun. Many of us have been stabbed in the back by bosses trying to save face, or many of us have gotten in the way of coworkers trying to climb the ladder of success and just being used as another rung on that ladder. I think we can all profoundly identify in one way or another with Kohelet's lament at this point. And in several places, the biblical authors, not only in Ecclesiastes, but throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, they also feel free to lament. But this doesn't mean they don't have hope. In fact, unless we take an honest assessment of the brokenness in this life, in this fallen world, in this life under the sun, our hope will be rather fake and fleeting. If we aren't honest with ourselves about the injustices and the oppression in this world, then the kingdom of God that confronts these things won't be that great either. Lament is a necessary starting point for building a kingdom perspective, but let me be clear, it's only a starting point. If we only sit at lament without moving to affirm the goodness of God, the goodness of his kingdom, or our place in that kingdom, then we will only be led to despair. Lament must move beyond itself to hope. So this then raises the question, what is our hope in this life and in our work under the sun? So our second main point, approaching life and work from a kingdom perspective involves an equally honest hope. And if you would look at the text again with me, specifically 3, 17 through 18, where the text reads, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. So in light of the pervasive injustice and oppression that Kohelet observes under the sun, he hasn't completely lost hope. A kingdom perspective, yes, it laments over brokenness and injustice, but it also moves to hope in the one, the only one, who can ultimately right all wrongs. Now, what's interesting about the whole movement of this passage, if we take an overarching look at it, is that in 3.16, Kohelet laments. And in the passage we just read, 3.17 through 18, he unlocks this ray of hope real quickly, but then in 4.1 through 3, he moves back to lament. He still hasn't completely moved past his lament, but he's still able to hope in the midst of his lament. He holds these two things in tension, lament over the brokenness of this world, yet hope in the one who will confront this brokenness. And in my experience, I think we often do a poor job of holding these two things in tension when that's exactly what we sometimes need to do. Consider, for instance, the death of a loved one. And I know that each and every one of us here have lost somebody who's very dear to us. And it's biblical when we have the death of a loved one to weep over such a loss. As humans, these losses are meant to affect us profoundly. And in fact, the shortest verse in the whole Bible, John eleven thirty five, is the simple phrase, Jesus wept. And it's in reference to the death of Jesus' friend, Lazarus. Jesus himself weeps over loss. However, along with such a loss comes well-meaning individuals 
who don't often do a good job of meeting us in our grief. I think we all probably have somebody in mind. And I'll be the first to admit that I've been one of these well-meaning individuals on multiple occasions. Uh, these people desperately want to give us hope, but it feels like sometimes we're often lectured about hope in the midst of our grief so that we would simply get over our grief and move on to hoping. Yet the human soul is so much more complex than the way our typical linear Western minds tend to think. One can grieve and yet at the same time have hope. And this is exactly what Kohelet is doing in this passage. But since we already talked about lament, we spent a whole main point on it, let's move back to hope and talk about where our hope lies. Again, Kohelet says, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Ultimately, the justice, the injustice in the law courts and the oppression that pervades society will not have the final word. Developing a kingdom perspective on life and work calls us to see that ultimately God is in control of all things and that he will indeed right all wrongs. Notice that the Kohelet doesn't provide any details about this judgment. He's confident that God is going to judge, confident that God is going to work to right all wrongs, that he's going to do what he promises to do in the scriptures. But at the same time, Kohel doesn't really get called up in any of the details of how God's going to do it or when he's going to do it. But why the delay? How many of us have cried out, maybe in our hearts or maybe even verbally, how long, O oh Lord? When will you lay waste to the oppressors? When will you comfort the downcast and the oppressed? When will you bring your kingdom with power? How many of us have cried out, how long, O Lord? And while Kohela doesn't give an answer to the when question, when God is going to do this, he does give an answer as to why God is delaying. Look again with me at 3.18, where the text reads, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. So the point of this delay, the point of why God is waiting, is so that he would graciously show humans, show you and me, that we are like beasts. Specifically, the touch point here is that he would show us that we are mere mortals. You see, Kohela just expressed confidence that God is ultimately going to right all wrongs. But in order to truly look to him to do what he's going to promise, we have to wreck any notion that you or I have the power to right all wrongs. God's goal of showing us that we are but beasts, of showing us that we are mere mortals, is actually an incredibly gracious goal. Our hope, our ultimate hope, cannot be in any human endeavors. It can't be in cultural indoctrination. It can't be in military might. It can't ultimately be in education. These programs, if we put our whole stock into these things, are ultimately going to disappoint us. Our hope must be rooted in God's plan, must be rooted in God's power. Well, does this mean that we shouldn't pursue justice, though? I know some of you might be asking that. Does this mean that we shouldn't pursue the welfare of the city? Well, no, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that. Absolutely, we are called to do that, is what I mean. God calls us to do those things in other portions of Scripture. But this isn't necessarily on the forefront of Kohelet's mind in this context. Developing a kingdom perspective on life and work requires us to first and foremost rest in our appropriate place as mortals so that we can draw hope 
from the only one who will ultimately right all wrongs. Without such a perspective, one might try to rest in our abilities, but ultimately will be bound to be disappointed. Now another question, I'm sure that's raised from a cursory reading of this text, is Kohelt's expression in 321, where the text reads, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upwards and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Well, this certainly seems like Kohelet is denying the afterlife. It's kind of the elephant in the room of this text. What in the world is going on? I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. I can try to provide something. <clears throat> For those like the Wiccan in this text, who only live life in the horizontal, who only live life from a solely under-the-sun perspective and are never confronted with the hope offered in the gospel, this is the inevitable conclusion. Not the true conclusion, but the inevitable conclusion. From a strictly under-the-sun perspective, we cannot tell, we are mere mortals, and we can't tell what's going to happen after death. Living only in this truth, living only in the truth of an under-the-sun perspective, could either drive us to hopelessness, perhaps concluding it's all vanity, or, on the other hand, maybe we would pursue animal-like behavior and tear down others in the pursuit of the survival of the fittest. But for those of us who are confronted with the hope offered in the gospel, for those of us who are confident that God is going to do what he says he's going to do, for those of us who are sure that God is going to right all wrongs, <clears throat> we are moved beyond the impasse of a merely under-the-sun perspective. Our hope is that God would meet us in this life under the sun. Our hope is that the vertical would transcend the horizontal. Our hope is that God himself would put an end to the injustice and show us that we are more than just mere mortals, to show us we're more than just beasts, to show us that we are beloved subjects of the kingdom of God. Kohela's hope and our hope is that God would establish his kingdom and eventually stamp out all frustration and toil. Our hope is for the promises of Scripture to be true, the promises of a text like Psalm 94, 14 through 15, which we read at the outset of the service, which reads, For the Lord will not forsake his people, he will not abandon his heritage, for justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Our hope is that we wouldn't merely return to the dust, but that God would ransom our souls from the power of Sheol. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we've been given another perspective that confronts this life under the sun. We have been given a resurrection perspective. The kingdom of God has come powerfully through our King and our Lord Jesus Christ. And standing in the stream of the people of God of the Old Testament, <clears throat> Kohelet hoped in the midst of lament that God would establish his kingdom and that he would indeed right all wrongs. However, he didn't know how this would come about or exactly when it would come about, or what it would look like. He merely knew that God was going to do what God promised to do. Yet we, brothers and sisters, see the promises of God, the promises of a text like Psalm 94, 14 through 15, in a much fuller and grander way than Kohelet ever did. While Kohelet expressed a quiet confidence that God would right all wrongs in the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, we see God himself bearing the worst injustice known to man, the worst injustice in human history. Our assurance that God would right all wrongs is much fuller than Kohelet's because God himself has met us in our oppressions. Let me read again from our scripture reading text today that Gabe read for us, 1 Corinthians 15, I'll read verses 47 through 49. The first man was from the dust, 
or from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We all perish like the first man, Adam. Even now, we all will perish like the first man, Adam. We still experience death. All are from the dust, and to the dust all return. But through Christ, if you're a believer in Christ, there is resurrection hope. The kingdom is characterized by life, and Christ has not only brought the the righting of all wrongs, but he's also brought a kingdom characterized by life. In our present life under the sun, we have resurrection hope because the kingdom of God has broken through in this life under the sun. However, we still lament, like I said before, like our fellow saints in Revelation, we cry out, how long, O Lord? We still await the full promises of 1 Corinthians 15 to be finally and firmly true for us. It our king's resurrection assures us of our own. It assures us that we too will experience this new life. But in the meantime, we wait. But like, but like Kohelet, we don't wait as somebody who is idle. We don't wait and just retreat from life. We go about our work, but we go about our work with an even greater confidence than Kohelet. Well, when we have this hope, we can truly approach work without despair and actually, and this is the fun part, actually find joy in our work. This leads us to our third point and our last point. Third, approaching life and work from the kingdom perspective involves simply honest work. Even though we lament over work in this fallen world, Kohelet concludes that there is still joy to be found in work. First, Kohelet gives us the simple command, essentially, just work. We're not called to be paralyzed or to sit idle by in the midst of these injustices and the oppression that we experience. 322, I'll read that text again, reads, So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Now, I don't think Kohelet here is reaching some type of fatalistic conclusion as if work is all we have to look forward to because everything else is vanity. Now, for those who don't have hope in Jesus Christ, this is true. But I think his advice here springs from the confidence that we already looked at, the confidence that God is ultimately at work righting all wrongs. <clears throat> this world is broken, but there is still genuine joy to be found in life in living the fullness of who you and I were created to be. Well, part of establishing a kingdom perspective on work requires us to see work the way God intended it. Not as some necessary evil that we tolerate, but as something good that God created and that he took part in himself before the fall even occurred. Tim Keller, in a sermon on Genesis 1 through 2, <clears throat> notes that in the Babylonian creation mythology from several thousand years ago, the chief god, Marduk, he created humans. He and his, the other gods created humans to do work in order for the gods to rest. So in this Babylonian creation mythology from several thousand years ago, work is seen as a bad thing. It's a necessary evil that humans are subjected to. In another myth, a Greek myth of origins known as Pandora's box, Zeus, chief god, the Greek um, deity, he gives Pandora, this human woman, a box and tells her not to open it. But she does, and when she opens it, all of the bad things, things such as death and decay and disease, flow out of this box. 
and interestingly enough, work also. You see, in these two creation myths, work is seen as some necessary evil that is subjected to human servitude. But I think that that our perspective on work, that these creation mythologies, we buy into in some sense. How many of us have said things like, just working for the weekend, or I'm working to go on vacation? I know I've thought things like that and said things like that before. Yet scripture gives us a much different picture than these creation mythologies that we often buy into as well. As Keller later notes in the, on the first two chapters of Genesis, he says work is put into paradise. You see, work is something that God himself takes part in before the fall. God himself puts his hands in the dirt to create. Work is a gift from God, not a punishment for sin. And although we know, as we've talked about numerous times, that work has been corrupted in some pretty serious ways because of the fall, work itself is a good thing. Therefore, we should heed Kohelet's advice first and foremost and rejoice in our work. Simply, let's work and see work as, as God intends us to see it. Not as some necessary evil that we tolerate, but as something good that he created. Second, Kohelet tells us how to work. And this will close out the, the passage in verses 4, 4 through 6. I'll read this text again. Kohelet says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also was vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. So in this passage, Kohelet outlines actually three different ways of working. First, we read the fool who folds his own hand. Now simply put, Kohelet is referring in this passage to those who maybe see the oppression of life and they give up. They retreat. But as we already saw a few times in this passage, this observation doesn't square with his advice in 3.22. Perhaps those who succumb to this option are those who see the brokenness and the oppression of life and simply give up. But developing a kingdom perspective on work means that we must stay on the front line of the kingdom's advance, and this cannot come by simply giving up when we're confronted by the oppressions of life. Well, the second option Kohel explores are those who have, quote, two hands full of toil. Simply put, this means working in order to acquire wealth and status. Seeing work and using work as merely a means to get ahead in life. And this doesn't, I'll say at the outset, this doesn't overthrow the adage that hard work pays off. I think that's true and hard work really does pay off. But this does cause us to re-examine our outlook on work. The results of this type of work, of working simply to, to establish yourself, to establish status and wealth, the results are elaborated upon in 4, 7 through 8. Those who work simply to get ahead in life and to subdue all others will be left cutting off all relationships with those closest to him or her. And in the end, ask the question of verse 8, quote, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? There will be ultimately no satisfaction when all we do is work for ourselves and work for our own good. Ultimately, a kingdom perspective must not only be concerned with the needs of the king and what the king is calling us towards, but it must also be concerned with the needs of the fellow subjects of the kingdom, the needs of people in this room. Well, finally, though, Kohelet gives us one simple phrase that touches on the appropriate way to work, and we read this in 4.6. 
where we read, better is a handful of quietness. So instead of retreating and giving up in despair or joining the rat race, so to speak, and acquiring wealth and status by your work, Kohelet suggests that one, we simply work, and two, that we enjoy our work with contentment. Now, a handful of quietness, I'll qualify that, it doesn't mean that we should keep to ourselves and ignore the subject of the kingdom. Like I said, it doesn't mean that. Rather, it's language that Kohelet uses to temper the chaos of how work is often approached in this life under the sun. This doesn't mean we shouldn't pursue the, the alleviation of suffering. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't pursue justice in life and work. We should, and we need to develop a holistic picture of life and work from the whole witness of Scripture. But this passage gives us an important perspective that we cannot miss. God is ultimately in control of all things. He has created work as something that's good. It's not to be ignored. It's not to be abused or used. It's not to be used for our own advantage. Well, in conclusion, if you're a believer in Christ, Scripture exhorts us to put on the new self in Christ. It's from Colossians 3, which tells us to, first of all, put off the old self, so put off the things like evil desires and covetousness, things that don't quite square with the kingdom of God as a subject of the kingdom. Yet as beloved subjects of the kingdom, as those who are called holy and beloved, this text also tells us to put on the new self, to put on things that are characterized by humility, by kindness, by patience. Apart from Christ, the majority of us are bound to retreat from life and work in defeat or despair or join the injustices that characterize this life and work under the sun. However, the kingdom of God will defeat the injustice and oppression in the life we experience. God's going to do what he said he's going to do, and Christ is the first fruits of that promise. The kingdom has broken into this life under the sun, and we work knowing that victory has been won. So developing a kingdom perspective, again, on life and work requires, one, an honest assessment about life and work, to be honest with ourselves two, an equally honest hope, and then three, honest work. So let me pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you don't leave us in darkness. Um, that you too weep over injustice and oppression, Lord, and at the same time that you call us to act in the midst of injustice and oppression because you foremost have acted. And so, Lord, we look to you the perfecter and the founder of our salvation. We look to you as the one who has made all things right and who promises to come again in glory and to finally consummate your kingdom and draw us into it where there, where there will be no more pain, no more tears, and no more suffering. Until then, Lord, we cry out, how long, O oh Lord? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. <clears throat>